This is Operation Red Pill, the only podcast hosted by Truthfully Armed, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host Christopher Dean. Oh yeah! Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about a critical aspect of the occult matrix as we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing. Demonically Influenced Education Part 2, The Tactics. Is our education system truly focused on producing the best and the brightest, or is it part of an occult agenda to destroy our individuality, reduce our intelligence, and re-engineer our society? We're going to talk about this and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we take you beyond conspiracy theories to the heart of the conspiracy itself. Christopher Dean! How you doing, Jason? Oh, man, I'm doing pretty good. How's your week been? Not bad, not bad. Uh, my son is starting to walk, and the faster he goes, the farther out in front of him his arms stick out. Right. So at full speed, he looks like a zombie. It's actually pretty good. That is hilarious. <laughs> like, you guys got to wrap up in toilet paper. Right. We should. And try. then actually just let him walk and film that. <laughs> that'd be great. Oh, that'd be hilarious. How are you doing? You know, Christopher, man, I I got something itching at me, man. It's, it's been bothering me all week. All right. Let me hear it. Now, you know, look, I'm noticing that never before has there been a more focused and organized effort to enshrine the ideals of man while abolishing the doctrines of God than we're seeing today. Okay. You know, we've got humanist educators like John Dewey working in conjunction with, you know, pre-Germanic psychological conditioning methods that were financed by globalists like the Rockefellers who are responsible for laying the groundwork for the countercultural transformation of our entire educational system. That's a big itch. It's huge, man. I'm telling you, I've been scratching, scratching deep, you know, because I'm noticing that our schools and universities have changed, bro. They used to be these uh, these theistic based centers of discovery. And now they've become these atheistic indoctrination camps, which were designed to not only erode the very idea of God from the conversation, but they were actually designed to kill the student just little by little. You know, it's like by disconnecting us from God, who we Christians hold to be the source of all life we were left to a system that has its architectural roots embedded deep in the thinking that's clearly demonically influenced. And here's what's crazy. Our educational system's only one part of a much larger campaign to obtain total control by the globalist elites, elites who are sold out to this Luciferian control method of infiltrate, counterfeit, and usurp. You know, it's like if, if God has an institution that he's put into society, they want to infiltrate it. All right. If he if he has a process or a methodology that he's created to to put in place for the safe development of a human being on a psychological, mental, uh, emotional or even spiritual level, then they want to counterfeit it or they want to hijack the whole process and don't let him have a purpose or an order that he's put in place so that things develop the way that they need to and that there's a proper function for the things that he's created so that he gets ultimately glory from being a super smart, incredible, creative genius. Because as soon as that happens, they want to usurp that very thing. They want to be the ones in charge. That's maniacal. Right. Sounds like if, if you're not careful, you'll find yourself in the ICU. I like that. 
I like that. No, that's good. Infiltrate, counterfeit, and usurp. I didn't see that, man. That's dope. <clears throat> yeah, they've been coming out of the ICU. That has like personal feel. You know what I mean? It's got oh, a personal yeah. issue for me. But no, that's good. And, and it's almost like a double entendre. It's not just ICU like in, intensive care, so to speak. Right. But like since Satan's always trying to be stealth-like, I, I see, see you. Ah, I like that. Yeah, we, we don't have to remember that. That works on multiple levels. You know what? We should start a podcast. We should start one. That's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> I don't know who would listen. <clears throat> but yeah, so they've been using this strategy for decades mm -hmm. to build out what we call the satanic control matrix. And that's this attempt to enact a full spectrum dominance protocol across three control zones, right? Three control zones. It's individual, social, and global. Okay. Control is the name of the game because it's so important. Why, you might ask? Because it's really the only chord Satan can play, being that he's a created being with inherent limitations, who does pose the limitless attributes, who doesn't, sorry, who doesn't possess the limitless attributes of the Most High and as such can only mimic those attributes. And that makes sense if you think about it because... He's not sovereign. You know, he doesn't have all authority. So he has to resort to extreme or absolute force. You know, he has to be domineering. Right. He's not all loving, you know, just to name a, a few attributes. He can't compel people to do things from a position of love. So he can only compel them through fear or intimidation. And he's definitely not omniscient. He's not all knowing. So he has to foster his mind in a person so they can get him to think the way that he does. And then by getting him to think the way that he does, he can get them to react the way that he wants them to react. And that's really manipulation. And when you have those three, domination, intimidation, manipulation, you have the three key aspects of witchcraft. And that's exactly what we see Satan is doing on a global, even a cosmic scale right now, all throughout our society. Bro, that's huge. And that's exactly what we uh, started talking about in our six-part mini-series that focuses on the whole satanic control matrix, which is beginning to implement and be fought across three overlapping battles fronts, which we have labeled Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. Right, right. And I think it would help people to think of these as three concentric or interconnected control zones. Where Alpha is the smallest and focuses on individual thinking and behavioral modification. Bravo is an intermediary control zone that focuses on social or collective thinking. And finally, you've got Charlie, which is the, the granddaddy. It's the largest zone of control, and it focuses on global domination. Okay, now that makes sense. But now, for the person that might be pressed for time, maybe they're out trying to run errands or something. Okay. Uh, maybe they're just not able to get to the website to look at our battlefronts. Mm -hmm. um, how can we unpack this uh, to make it a little bit easier for them to digest? Okay. First off, they ought to go to the website because, I mean, there's a lot of time <laughs> and work that went into that. But I get it. You know, we're busy in life. We got a lot of things going on. So at least there's somebody that's listening to the podcast and they're with us and they want to know, hey, give me a little, a little more information. So that's cool. Let's start with Alpha. This is obviously the smallest and most concentrated of the three control zones, uh, with the focus here being, again, on individual conditioning of the pupil. Now, this is where demonic forces used or they use a compromised educational system to force behavioral and thought modifications. And they do that using various uh, conditioning techniques, which are designed to destroy individuality, 
reduce overall intelligence and actually reengineer society. All at the same time, they want to initiate students into various levels of occult thinking, with the final outcome being students that are stripped of their God-given genius so they become functionally incompetent and they're effectively dumbed down to the point that they become socially dependent on the state and they are hostile to the very idea of God. Welcome to state-sponsored compulsory education. Sounds like it. Now, you got Bravo, which is next, and, and that represents an intermediary tier of control, which focuses on social or collective thinking. This is where Satan uses occult thinking techniques like brainwashing and spellbinding in conjunction with industries like the news, entertainment, and uh, big tech in order to meld the individual mind into a larger hive mind. You want to think uh, mom mentality or group think here. This is where the incompetency that was developed and fostered in the alpha zone really begins to metastasize and, and, and grow here and show its ugly head. Okay, that makes sense. And then you got, lastly, Charlie. And Charlie is by far the largest sector because it focuses on complete and total global dominance. <laughs> complete and total. Yeah, it's so bad that you have to be repetitive. Have to be. Uh, this is where Satan attempts to establish... A, uh, a renegade confederacy that uses the what we'll call the deep state, deep church and deep occult to reset the created order back to its pre-flood conditions while simultaneously taking a people that were previously stripped of their God-given genius and taught to think recklessly and reactively to stimuli. And consequently, those same people have become more manageable. He wants to take them and subjugate them under a single totalitarian regime known as the New World Order. Mm -hmm. I know that's a lot. So does that does that help make sense? I think it does. Okay. I think it helps a little bit. And like you said, uh, we go over all three of these in much greater detail on our website. So if you're listening and you're interested, uh, just go to truthfullyarmed.com, scroll down on the homepage, and you'll see a section that says the trilateral war. And uh, there should be a learn more icon on each one of those sections, uh, whichever one might tickle your fancy. You know, that's a phrase not used nearly enough in today's vernacular. What? Tickle your fancy? Yes. I'm using that this week. <laughs> I'll be in HR by Tuesday. <laughs> if you're lucky. Right. <laughs> well, with that said, let's go on ahead and get into part two of the demonically influenced educational system and talk about the ta tactics, geez, tactics used to establish individual control over pupils while indoctrinating them with occult thinking. I got a question here, Jason. What was school like for you? <sighs> that side doesn't tell you enough. <laughs> I really shouldn't have to use words. Um, school was challenging. Okay. And I think anybody hears that is going to be like, well, so, I mean, school is supposed to be challenging. Right. Um, and not necessarily from academic sense. If I had to use a different one word response that kind of sums up my idea of school, uh, it would probably be rejection. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Most of my thinking back in school was that I had problems on a social level, dealing dealing and, and connecting with people. I was constantly on the outside of social groups. Okay. But I also found myself on the outside of academic groups. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I was never really in the circle of acceptance. Okay. Um, and, and it was kind of interesting because teachers didn't know how to deal with me. You know, going to the elementary school that I went to, starting off there, I went to a predominantly white school. Okay. Uh, was probably one of the physically one of the biggest people there. So I was for, outside. For those that don't know, 
Are, are you not white? Well, given my tone and vernacular, <laughs> you might suspect. Well, for those that might not be too quick to judge. No, no, I am African-American. <laughs> I am colored. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll stay away from using the term black. I like that. I like uh, that. But yeah, I am of African-American descent. And going, growing up in a school that's predominantly white, you're outside of some of maybe the cultural norms. And then when you are physically one of one of the three biggest children in your entire grade, you stand out. Right. So everything about that experience was you're just not normal. And it carried over even academically. I found that I was bored easily in school. Okay. Um, and teachers didn't know how to respond to that. They would actually, when you get bored as a kid, you tend to do other things to entertain yourself, especially if you're stuck in school. Right. So for me, that might come like talking, laughing, um, playing with toys, making toys out of objects, what have you. Turning a pencil into a, a spaceship. Or a coda bus, <laughs> whatever it takes to just get through the monotony. You know, that's and I funny. think I, uh, I probably carried that trade all the way through college. Okay. You know, that's how I met Lance from Lancelot's Roundtable. All was, right. You know, that very thing. But student, uh, teachers didn't know how to react to that. And you can mistake a person like that for behavioral issues. Right. And right. it wasn't until I got to second grade that thankfully God blessed me with a teacher who had enough insight to realize that this is not a student who's a problem student, quote unquote. Right. The reason that I got time to act out and the reason I got time to talk to my other peers, especially during reading time, was actually because I read so fast. Okay. So even to this day, like I don't like having stuff read to me. So I would be in class and they would go do the class reading. I'd read the whole thing. And now oh, everybody okay. else is still reading. I got time. Right. To no, do, that makes sense. You know, whatever. So those traits kind of carried up all the way through my education process. So for me, it's kind of those things where I'm glad I'm out of school. I didn't like school. I really liked education. I love learning. I just didn't really like the academic process, especially during those 12 years. Okay. But what was it like for you? So it was kind of interesting for me because growing up was was rough. Um, like trying to stay warm, keep food on the table was, was of the most importance. Okay. So for a lot of my years in school, it was just kind of background noise. Like I have a couple of teachers that I remember, but a lot of my, unless I r try real hard to remember like a Charlie Brown teacher, like I'd remember them from, I don't, this is going to sound bad from the neck down. Like without, yeah, that <laughs> sounds bad <laughs> without a face and just kind of this, wah, 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 you know, outside of <laughs> teachers that stuck out. It was just this thing that that I kind of had to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in and out of um, public school and homeschooling. So I didn't get. You got homeschooled? Yeah, I got homeschooled. I was actually homeschooled, I think, for more years than I went to public school. Really? Yeah. But it, it was very much back and forth. That is crazy. It's so funny to find out how many of my friends were actually homeschooled. You have a lot of them that were homeschooled? I have more than I suspected. Like growing up, homeschool was the weird thing. Yeah. It was the anomaly. Uh huh. So when you found someone who was homeschooled, it was like finding a leprechaun. Right. People looked at you weird. You, you did. And, and immediately you suspected that they were dumb. Uh huh. You know, it was like you couldn't cut it in the special ed's class <laughs> at school. So they kicked you home well, and, and made you learn there. It's funny because in my experience, it's actually the other way around. Every time I had to integrate back into public school. Right. I was always ahead. And the well, stuff see, that that's what I found out. Easy. That's that's what shocked me when I actually got to meet people who were homeschooled. I was always shocked at how smart they really are, and not just 
you know, intellectually smart, but academically how much further ahead they were than where you were supposed to be in school. When the stigma is that they're dumb. And I'm like, anything but. Right. And it does this weird thing. I mean, because going in and out, it kind of gave me a different perspective. Mm. But for those, I mean, there's a bunch of kids that think, why do I have to go to school? But it was really interesting being homeschooled and going to public school when I had to go back to public school and attend classes on stuff that I had already learned because that's what the system said I was supposed to do. Okay. It seemed to make even less sense. Like, I mean, I literally already learned this stuff, but I'm still have to do it because that's, that's what you do. So it's really interesting. Yeah. I've had those weird type of experiences with school too, uh, especially being put on certain AP tracks. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I'm telling you, dude, my experience with school was so weird. <laughs> Like, I have the distinction of being the only person in 12th grade who took 12th grade proficiency or the AP advanced placement math. Okay. Which placed me in calculus on in 12th grade, uh, which is way above where normal 12th grade math would be. Because okay. by the time I finished that whole course and graduated, I had a college credit for for calculus already on the books. Nice. But when I took the 12th grade proficiency test... I failed the math part. That's weird. The only person. <laughs> the only person. The only person. That's what made it so bad. Like when they went through and they were like, so we had one person because the schools were trying to hit their numbers. Uh-huh. We got one person that did not complete 12th grade proficiency math. And they wouldn't say it, but all the teachers were looking at me like, how? How? <laughs> That's funny. How do, you, how do you have an A in calculus and you fail 12th grade math? And the reason was test anxiety. Oh, okay. I didn't test well. So See, t- testing was never something I struggled with, but it's funny. I had a, I was taking a psychology class in college Okay. and I was, I, I'm assuming I was number one in the class. Like I had answers every time the professor if, asked. If you have to make an assumption, assume you're number well, one. Well, I mean, it, like I'm not, <laughs> you'll, you'll, under, you'll understand why I'm saying this here in a minute. Um, but I, I got along, I was comfortable with the curriculum and everything. And then it came to, um, test day and I misunderstood the schedule. Okay. So I showed up five minutes before the test was over. I was late. Like I'm just excelling at everything in this class. And the day that I have to show it, I have no time. The professor was nice and he's like, I don't know why you're late, but I'll give you a couple more minutes to finish. And I was like, this is so terrible. You need professors like that. Like that, that stuff's so important. Like when I went to, uh, when I went to college and I had to do my placement test coming right off of my stellar performance on, on the 12th grade proficiency <laughs> test, I was nervous. And I came out of AP Calc and tested into remedial math right in college, like re- underneath 12th grade math. Like I, it was pre-algebra. That's wow. where they started me. Okay. And so I slept every day in the class. <laughs> I would come in. I was quiet, respectful, didn't cause no problems, put my head down, slept. Every time she took a test or gave a test, I took it in pen, nailed the test. All right. Confused the heck out of this teacher. <laughs> she had no idea what was going on. She pulls me aside one day and she's like, why are you here? And I was like, I, I tested into your class. She goes, how? You are the only student who takes all of my tests in pen and I don't have to correct it. I was like, yeah, I love putting these on the refrigerator. It's so encouraging. <laughs> so she goes, she takes me the next day or the, not the next day, but when I had to actually schedule for next year's class, okay. she took me into the Dean's office and she goes, he doesn't need to be here. 
because they put me on this track where next I had to do medial math, like 102. I had tested in 101. Okay. She goes, he doesn't need to be here. And he's looking at her like, what are you talking about? So she explains the situation. He goes and pulls my entry exam. And he goes, two plus two is six. I said, I don't test well. That, he was, goes, real, that was your that answer? That was my answer. <laughs> <laughs> two plus six. Oh, Lord, please help me. <laughs> so he goes, he pulls up my transcripts. He looks at everything and he goes, yeah, okay. You don't need to be into this. That's funny. So he immediately places me back into Calc 1. So I had to take that all over. Okay. But at least it, it, it jumped me. Right. And I'm like, if I hadn't had a good professor like that, I'd have been stuck. Right. I'd have to pay a lot more money and all of that. Having good teachers is really, really a good beneficial thing. It's essential. Yeah. But that brings me to the next question here. Was there ever a, a time in your scholastic career that you ever looked at the system as a whole and just thought to yourself, something doesn't seem right here? Yeah, pretty much the whole thing. Really? Yeah. And I mean, like I was saying, because I was homeschooled and then public school, like uh, you just... Uh, keep going into this and I already learned it, you know, so there was that. But then even within like the, the walls of the classroom, you know, kids wondered, why are they teaching algebra? You know, how, how is this actually helping me get ready for the world? Because so much of what is going to hit me when they kick us out of here, mm -hmm. we're not being educated for. So there's always that question, but you're kind of treated like you're just young and you don't understand. You'll, you'll understand one day. Stop asking stupid questions like, why does school need to make sense? Um, and a quick sidebar, like I didn't realize one of the benefits of algebra until after I was out of school. Okay. Because I'd had this conversation with people. I'm like, why? If you're not gonna be a math teacher, why waste all of this time on something you're never gonna use? Um, and they were like, well, it actually trains your brain for problem solving. Like it changes the parameters, you know, so you have, mm -hmm you know, all your variables and everything and forces your mind to work outside of what's germane to you to, to solve for X or, or whatever, right? you know, and that's, that's crucial. Like that actually helps you with life. But they don't teach algebra that way. They don't. You're absolutely right. There's a huge cognitive benefit to it, which I, I also remember that takeaway. Once I got out of algebra class, like way down the line, right. I remember I was doing stuff with like a flight simulator and I had to go through this process of evaluation and elimination. And it was algebraic kind of like formulating. Well, if X, I'm trying to solve for Y, you know, I got Y I'm trying to, uh, and I don't know what X is, but I do have these things. I can kind of solve for that and figure it out. It teaches your brain how to think. Right. And there's like three courses I think should be imperative if for that very reason, if you're going to try to teach a person how to think. Okay. Math, philosophy, in law. Okay. If I had to maybe make a variation, computer coding, okay. I, would, I would probably put in there because it too teaches those types of things. And I feel bad because I know there's somebody who's like, you didn't say the Bible. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't teach you how to think, but I, I, these are disciplines that train the mind on rational thought. No, that makes sense. And different modes of thinking. And I think that's important too. To right. be able to train your brain to flexibly go through different modes of thought and right. to be proficient in those various modes. No, it is important. Right. So uh, based off of that, you saw that there are some things in school that didn't make sense? I did, but it took all the way to college for me. Okay. Uh, I remember being in school and I had to take an elective. I had to take a humanities. Right. And I didn't want any of them but I ended up picking one that 
dealt with like world religions and I'm in there. They're talking about Egyptian mythology. Oh, it was art history that I, I picked. That's the one that always gets picked on. Yeah. Like, what are you going to college for? Better not be art history. Right. But <laughs> it's some st- interesting stuff you learn. Somewhere in the midst of that, they got started talking about Egyptian mythology. Okay. And at the time, I was irritated. I was like, why am I being forced to pay to take a class that's teaching me something that is diametrically oppo- opposed to my belief system? That's interesting. Right. Why am I forced? Right. You have to take it. You have to. There's no way out of it. The next step was the college that I was at patterned itself off of OSU. Okay. So OSU is very business driven. They get a lot of money from from corporations. And they're not the only university like that. That's a major component of, of the academic structure on colleges and universities. Okay. So if colleges and universities are trying to to set up programs that produce students that are at a certain level of proficiency for businesses. That means businesses are setting the standard. Okay. That makes sense. Right. We're giving you money. We're supporting you. Give us workers who are capable in their field. Right. So it's not to make you generally educated or generally grow you because to make you ready to go into that business. Absolutely. But then if you go into a business, businesses by nature are self-contained. They're not looking for out-the-box thinkers per se. Right. They now, you can out-the-box can... in my in my ecosystem, you know, in, in my controlled environment. Right. But if you're too out-the-box, you can potentially become a competitor. Right. And, and I don't want that. You'd be out the job. Right. <laughs> so if I'm paying schools, and I use pain in quotes, you know, if we're giving money to schools to produce workers that are, what's the word I'm looking for? Suitable. Okay. For my line of work, then by definition, I'm not producing probably the most cognitively capable person. Right. That's a problem. Yeah. That's a, and that's I'm paying for it. That was one of those huge eye openers for me. Okay. Where I started to really look behind the curtain and go, this doesn't all make sense. Right. You know, now then there were spiritual aspects to it as well. I started paying attention to what was getting drilled into us. Okay. Like one of the things things that kept coming up, but things that were also subtle, like it really bothered me that in science class and I loved science class, it bothered me that we have general laws that we teach that by the way they're worded, challenge the idea of creationism just by their wording. All right. What's one of them? The law of conservation of energy. Okay. Energy can be neither created nor destroyed by that immediately. As soon as it's spoken, no problem. Fine. It's going to be on the test. I got to have it. Right. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. I don't know. I don't, I don't study energy, but then you go to scripture and scripture says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. That requires a lot of energy. If energy can be neither created nor destroyed, then it invalidates the claim of Genesis. Right. And we're here. We are. So that that would make any thinking person go, well, th- there's a gap here between not being able to be created and existing. Right. So that 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 subtle wording change plants an idea of doubt towards the biblical 
established fact of creation. Right. Without actually coming out and saying it. Absolutely. It, it just lays that right. framework or groundwork. So I started noticing little things like that, and it, it started to bother me. Okay. Well, it seems that our education system is really the result of three seemingly unrelated satanic agendas. Yeah, you'd have to really do your research to come to, to that point. To come to that conclusion, because it's not obvious. Right. It, and they it really don't teach you the this. Radar, yeah, because sure. they don't teach you this at school at all. Right. Because they seem disconnected, but they're really interconnected. Right. So we have the adoption of the Prussian educational model. All right. Is one thing. We have the impact of John Dewey's progressive education method. And that's monumental in and of itself. Right. And then the effect of compulsory education on the American mind. All right, man. We got a lot to talk about, man. Let's get into it. It's going to be good. We got a lot. All right. So what we got, Prussian educational model? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where we are. But I have, right. I have a question. Do you know who knew the, do you know who Napoleon was? Uh, vote for Pedro? Not that Napoleon. Wait, Not wait. Napoleon Dynamite. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the French... <laughs> conditioned by Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. You say Napoleon and I'm immediately thinking vote for Pedro. Right. You got to. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, I mean uh Napoleon Bonaparte, the French military commander, political potentate. Uh, he rose uh to frame fame, he rose to frame. The little dude. The well, see, we got to get into that. No, but wasn't he the small guy? Like every t- I was just watching uh um well, what's my movie series I love so much and now I can't even think of it. Uh, not at the museum. Okay. And as it was the second one where they went to Smithsonian <laughs> and they had the little dude, they had little Napoleon. Like, you talking about me, man? You have a problem? I don't, I really don't know if I've seen that. Yeah. Oh, you got to go watch those series. Those are great. So from Napoleon dynamite to night at the museum, that's <laughs> yeah. how you know who Napoleon is. This is the only way I don't know this Bonaparte guy <laughs> that you're talking about. Oh, that's funny. Well, the odd thing about Napoleon is he was actually five feet, 11 inches tall. That's like this is five eleven. It's close to Tom Cruise up, coming up on six feet, which, yeah. was, which was above average height for a Frenchman in those days. I don't know how the French are faring. He's five eleven, five eleven. So like the idea is maybe, you know, he was compensating because there's the psychological disorder of, uh, you know, you have Napoleon complex. Yeah. So, my sister's got that. <laughs> no, I got a sister. She's five one. Okay. And she's got that whole thing, you know, you don't talk about short people and she don't take no tea for the fever, no crate for the day. She, oh, yeah. That, that makes me feel a little bit worse when I was telling her the lyrics to short people. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, you should. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize that. <clears throat> no, so whatever, whatever uh, Napoleon may or may not have been compensating for, he definitely had a huge impact on world affairs. How so? Well, in about 1806, he defeated the Prussians in a decisive military campaign. It culminated at the Battle of Jena, where French forces under Napoleon occupied Prussia, which is the precursor to Germany. Okay. And he pursued the remnants of the shattered Prussian army all the way back to Berlin, and they were able to capture the city. Okay. That's a little bit of a humiliating defeat. Okay. Like to, to get whipped, like, <laughs> like if your parent whoops you all the way to your room. Like all right, you got a point. <laughs> they beat them all the way back home. All the way back home. Oh, that's crazy. So they were they were criticized for their lack of discipline, like because everybody's gonna notice if you're whooped all the way back home. Yeah, yeah, that's like when they did that to uh, the dude from Libya. What do you mean? Uh, who's the the dictator? The Libyan dictator Gaddafi. 
I think okay. we beat him all in the streets before <laughs> before we actually killed him. Like it was all C-SPAN. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. So <clears throat> Prussia wanted to kind of escape this criticize this I criticism. I would definitely. So they cleaned house. They overhauled their military training and created an entirely new system of rigorous psychological conditioning that produced extremely drilled and disciplined soldier that was above all completely sold out to the state to the degree that they would walk right into musket fire without a second thought. Sounds a little bit like you, Jason. I could see you just marching right out into musket fire. Listen, bro. Only concern was for your nation. What you seem to fail to realize is I got Negro senses. And with Negro senses, they will not allow me to go near any types of fire. Musket fire, live fire. I don't even go to barbecues where there's open pit fire. (laughs) (laughs) I stay away from all all of it. So I'm definitely not walking into musket fire. I'm Uh, straight. Okay. All right. Well, so maybe they weren't successful in reconditioning you, but the average Prussian citizen, they were. Got you. So much so that when they went back to war in World War One, it ended up in a draw. Wait, wait. So you're telling me that this country that got they behind whooped all the way back to their homeland, went through some sort of psyop, you know, psychological conditioning operation and took on the rest of the world and came to a draw? Yep. Bro, do you understand how huge that is? That's a, that's a little bit of a change. That is a monumental <laughs> change. What in the world were they going through? Well, it like you said, it's a psyop um, used to brainwash their countrymen into elite automatons. Like we said, walking into musket fire, so they'd sacrifice their life for the state. Hmm. The strange thing is, it was called kindergarten. Shut up. Yep. And it actually forms the foundation of the United States educational system. You see, that right there is how you know that our school system isn't about educating our children. Right. As much as it is apparently about socializing them and teaching them to be obedient to authoritarian control. Absolutely. Uh, Or as I'm told, as the Marines say, the instant willingness and obedience to follow orders without question. Yeah. That's a bit of a psychological issue there. I'm not saying with Marines. I'm just saying that the conditioning of a mind to do that without any form of questioning. Right. God doesn't even expect that. You see all over the place in the Bible. Come and let us reason. Let us talk this thing out. Right. All you're getting, get an understanding. And even Abraham when talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. I got one one more. One more. One more question. (sighs) You know, that reminds me of what Anita Hodge says. Uh, the, The key here is control. The establishment wants control over everything, particularly knowledge, orientation, competence. They want control over what students know and think. They want control over what they will be like, their attitudes, their feelings, and they want control over what they can do. To control and change the global playing field, which is what the globalists want to do, leaders must know how to manage group behavior. Like <laughs> that, That's that's an imperative. Okay. <clears throat> so we're going to poke... Poke, gee, I'm going to eat Christmas. Need a glass of water here. We're going to post a link on our website uh, to a documentary called State of Mind, The Psychology of Mind Control, or The Psychology of Control. It's, it's really good. You should check it out. It's an excellent source uh, for explaining how the elites use various forms of social controls, including our educational system, in order to merge individual and collective control into an effective means for social reengineering. Ah, I, I love that documentary. I Like you, I, I would highly recommend that. Uh, one of the things that goes over is that the Prussian system apparently has three goals. 
Uh, number one, destroy individuality. Number two, reduce intelligence. And number three, re-engineer society. That's a big claim on the last one. I oh, mean, yeah. We can get into it, but re-engineer society is... Uh, well, it, it's a tall ask, right? but they are being incredibly successful at it. You know, just take destroying individuality. You, you want to... F- they, they managed to force compulsory education. And force might be a strong word. Okay. Uh, we accepted it. You know, we took it on. Okay. And once it was on the books, once it was, you know, in play, we, we can't get out of it. We okay. could, but we don't necessarily want to because it would have to change. We would have to change a lot of our lifestyle and our culture. Right. It wasn't a immediate thing. It was a slow process. And that's how a lot of these things happen. They're more gradual, but it was still pre-planned. And the idea was you need to destroy a person's individuality in order to make them uh, a cog in the system and more conducive to socialist ideals. Because the the fathers of this whole Prussian ideology and the people that helped to engraft it into our culture thought that the best type of culture to produce, the utopian type of culture, mm-hmm. would be one in which people were less individualistic and more socialistic in nature, more controllable. Okay. So everything was geared towards getting socialistic ideas and values into the mind of a generation. Remember last week we talked about if you want to change a nation, you take over the youth. Right. Wasn't a Hitler. Give me one generation. Or no, that was Lenin. Give me one generation, I'll change of the youth and I'll change the world. Right. This is why. Because when you're able to get these things into the mind, these people grow up especially if your instant willingness, obedience to orders without question, you're not thinking about things in a holistic or challenging manner. Right. You're not thinking, thinking of them in a quote unquote critical manner. You follow me? Mm-hmm. So with compulsory education, one of the ways to destroy individuality is to initiate premature uh, acceptance of the pupil prior to where they should be based on their, based on their development. Okay. Uh, and, it denies a child some of the u- unique childhood development that they should enjoy while forcing a more rigid adherence to a state-sponsored structure, which a parent should actually be, which a parent, which a parent <laughs> <laughs> should be questioning. Why am I okay with state-sponsored education or government-controlled or government highly government-influenced education over my child? Right, but it's not something... It- I don't want to say it takes a lot to think that, but it's just there. It's just what we do. It's what we do now. Right. It is not what has always been done. Okay. But when you go through the system, there is the presumption that this is how it's always been. Like this is this monumental institution. This was here from the moment we signed the Declaration of Independence. Boom. We had cherry pie, apple pie, hot dogs in school. Baseball in school. Right. Yep. Immediately. And that wasn't it. We had a highly literate population Without much schooling. Yeah. We didn't I've have heard to people have 12 say years. That just like a lot of the, the documents that uh, circulated in the early days of America. Yeah. That the average American would have trouble reading them now. Oh, yeah. They're above what we would consider 12th grade proficiency reading, of which I passed. Thank you. <laughs> I, I got the, that the one, one part you passed. <laughs> hey, I passed most of it. I skimmed the rest. Oh, that's funny. So when it comes to reducing intelligence, uh, you have the premature entrance into a compulsory educational system where the pupil is subjected to intelligence 
intelligence. Uh, I got to just put it the way that they put it. It ain't going to be politically correct. But oh, well. <laughs> I'm not trying to say offensive, but intelligence retarding policies, policies that slow the process, uh, like age-based grading, for example, or standardized testing, linear versus nonlinear relational learning, rote memorization of facts without the corresponding relationship of why those facts are important, uh, and lack of real-world conceptual reinforcement uh, are all things which arrest the development of the mind. Okay. You follow me? Yeah, I gotcha. So these policies are so effective at actually arresting the development of children that there was a study that was done on, on divergent thinking. And it found that 98% of students who aged three to five scored in what would qualify them as creative geniuses. All right. That's what, impressive. It is. And you see this even with newborn babies, people who have not gone to the school system, they are incredibly intelligent. Right. They figure things out. They problem solve. And even sometimes without the the uh, the advantage of language, just working on their internal mind. Right. Not an external mind. Just working <laughs> off of the, the whole internal environment. They're well, able to do these things. My son is only, he just turned one. And you can see, like, he'll pick things up and look underneath them. And he tries to figure out how things work. Right. He's investigating. His mind's active. It, it's crazy to watch. So they noticed then after five years of schooling in a compulsory um, Prussian-based system, they retested the same students and only 32% after five years scored in the same range of creative genius. Wow, that's a significant drop. It is. After five additional years of schooling, it dropped to a staggering 10%. Huh. By age 25... Only 2% of the population remain as divergent thinkers, which is a complete reversal of the stats when they entered schooling. That's horrible. But, and I almost hesitate to ask because I know you like to bring the hammer. But if, I'm not Thor. <laughs> if, if we are dumb, how dumb are we really? Oh, so glad you asked. Ah, before I answer your question. <laughs> Here, here, here's the thing. Um, the first thing to take away: nobody likes to be called dumb. All right, it's it's almost immediately offensive, and, and I get that. But we also have to come to terms of realizing that there's been a strategic and well documented campaign to dumb us down. That's kind of what we just showed, just in that one study. There's a there's a intentional effort to reduce the God-given capacity of intelligence so that we are literally made to be, as, as, as elites call this, human resources. We're supposed to just be things that can be exploited by that system. Okay. So I'm not calling a person dumb, and I don't think you are either. No, no. But there's an intentional effort to take you and me and other people and literally dumb us down. Okay. And there are sense. statistics that actually show that they've been successful in that. For just just one, I don't, I don't have a list. Just, you know. <laughs> right. 81% of Americans 18 years old, 18 years or older are uh unprepared for college work according to this is all according to Jeb Bush Jeb Bush's Foundation for Excellence in Education, which he put together when he was running for president. Okay. Okay. More than 25% of students fail to graduate from high school in four years. 
for African-Americans and Hispanic students, this number is approaching 40 percent. Wow. According to, to a marriage college testing, that's ACT, uh, three quarters of American students who do achieve a high school diploma are not ready for college coursework and often need remedial classes that hurts in both the university <laughs> and community college levels. Only 20, only 26 percent are ready for college in all subjects. That's a low percentage. That's huge. Yeah, it's I mean, because it's super low coming out of considering the amount of money that we spend per right. student. Right. And we're and only, all of the years to prepare you. Right. And only 26 percent are actually prepared. Right. That's crazy. So more than a third of all Americans, 43 uh, percent read at the lowest two uh, literary levels, according to a 2003 uh, National Assessment of Adult Literacy. In 2009, nationwide, 67% of fourth grade students, uh, 75% of eighth grade students, and 74% of 12th grade students were not reading at a proficient level, according to the National Center for Educational Statistics. Uh, on a 2011 National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as the Nation's Report Card, only 35% of eighth graders performed at the, the grade level or above in math, while just 34% of both fourth and eighth graders scored at grade level or above in English. This means that 65% of eighth graders performed below grade level in math and 66% of fourth grade and eighth graders performed below grade level in English. According to a test in 2012 given to 15 year olds by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is OECD, US students were at 17th place in the world in reading and 27th in math, and 20th in science. 30% of high school students can't pass the U.S. military entrance exam, which is ASVAB, which is focused just on basic reading and math skills. Parents in the United States spend 5 to $7 billion a year on tutoring programs. Tutoring programs offering additional out-of-school instruction to students are drawing a growing number of clients as parents continue to be concerned about the quality of their children's schools. And on August 8th of 2013, the New York Times revealed the scores for the new Common Core state math and English test for students third through eighth grades. The new test supported by the Obama administration for the first time measure whether students are prepared to succeed in college and careers in today's economy as opposed to measuring whether they're on track to graduate high school. Under the new, more rigorous test, only 29.6% of students met proficiency standards in math and 26.5% of students met the standards in English. In other words, 70% of the students in the system are unprepared to succeed in our high-tech economy. Wow. That's, that's terrible. It would almost seem like it's a failing system. That's the thing. Like When you get these statistics, to us, they're shocking. But to a system that's intentionally trying to dumb you down, this is showing they're being increasingly successful. That's a scary thought. That's what's scary. See, when you take these tests, they it's a two-way mirror, if you will. Okay. It's reflecting to you what, you, what, you, what you're wondering. You know, how am I doing? It's also reflecting to them, how are we doing? Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Are we really being successful in getting this whole population less intelligent, less creative? How did the, the country that bought you, you know, the industrial revolution and all of the things that came from America, 
how do we get to the point where we're illiterate and we're like 26 or 27? Yeah, that's weird. Anytime I think of this, it and I didn't know if I was going to do this for the podcast or not, but it reminds me of the song Under Pressure. Any, I'm not going to sing it. Any, <laughs> for those that don't know, is <laughs> Under Pressure. But it's got the, the almost down. the vanilla ice that do 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 right do do do. That's what you hear every <laughs> time. You hear it. every time. That's funny because uh, pressure is coming down on me. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, G. Edward Griffin, uh, the author of the Creature from Jekyll Island, which is another great book, I would recommend. Absolute must read. In fact, after I read that book, when I look at stories in the news and what people are talking about, it kind of made me think that they were missing the mark. Because okay. he, he talks about the, the Fed and, and that kind of stuff. But in this book, he says that the, the Prussian system is based on a three-tiered structure. Uh, one tier is for the intellectual elite. The second tier is for the servants of the intellectual elite, which would be the professionals, like doctors and lawyers and, and all of those well-paid people. The last tier is for the lay, the masses. So the upper class, which the Prussians called the gymnasium, made up about half a percent of the population. And they were endowed with like critical thinking and active literacy. So they okay. were the ones that knew what was going on. The middle class or the real shul would be about 5%. They focused on numeracy, passive literacy, and, and technical skills. Like we said, so it would be your doctors, your, your lawyers, and things like that. Okay. Well, your lower class, your Volkshul, which it might sound familiar if you've heard of a Volkswagen, because it, it's translated as the people's car. So the people's school. For, that, for the lay, like we were saying, lower class. That's 95% of the population. The focus was on obedience, cooperation, and correct attitudes. Mm. And if you look at what a majority of people are like funneled in and what their focus is in education, it would be obedience, cooperation, and the right attitude. It would be. That's unsettling. Especially with it being on proper attitude. Right. It almost seems like the vast majority, 95%, as you pointed out, uh, if, if that's what they're being pointed towards and steered toward, especially um, official state myths of history, you know, things like that. If you're, if you're dealing with state-sponsored education and you want political correctness, right? it seems like it would actually be setting you up, conditioning you for a social change. Right. Which takes us then... What were you about to say? Well, I was going to say correct attitude. Like they're the ones who are defining what attitude you need to have. Absolutely. Because they're a quote unquote expert. Right. Yeah. But it, it sets you up for the third aspect of the Prussian system, which is re-engineering society. Okay. So here's the thing. With that, you want to remove ownership and the burden of responsibility of the child away from the parent and onto the state. And then grant the state the right to train and develop the child as an automaton, you know, one who's de devoid of a soul and lacking inherent worth bestowed by a loving creator. Instead, they're going to be given transient social value as is typically derived from a child's ability to perform or I'm sorry, to conform to groupthink until the child's no longer deemed socially valuable and they're discarded, you know, by the state in like fashion. Okay. Bertrand Russell famous uh, philosopher said that it's to be expected that education should aim at destroying free will Ooh. so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as the schoolmasters would have wished them to be. 
That's, that's not what we're told. Not at all. This is only half of his quote. And this is important because he's talking about the impact of science on society. And there are a lot of people that buy into Mr. Russell's point of view who will become architects of this whole new way of thinking. Okay. So here's the second part. Diet, injection, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Wow. If you don't hear that and it, and it, if you don't get disturbed by what you just heard, you weren't listening carefully enough. Right. That's, that's or I, I'm, I'm speechless. It takes a lot for you to be speechless. It, yeah. But like, this is the type of stuff that when you're not, when you're conditioned not to really read or, or you're taught that reading is hard and you have trouble with it, maybe because of, of things outside your control or maybe because it's intentionally presented to you in a way that makes it inherently difficult. But either way, it discourages you from reading. It prevents you from getting a hold of this type of information more easily. No, because they sense. typically are not broadcasting this. They're typically writing this. You know, there's that old adage. If you want to keep something away from a black person, put it in the book. It's a very derogatory adage. Yeah. A lot of a lot of people of color actually do a lot of reading, but they were forbidden to read coming out of slavery. OK. And then actually, once they came out of slavery, they were taught methods of reading that were destructive. They weren't the normal ways the, that the, not to make this whole racial history, but it wasn't the normal ways in which most of America being European was taught to read. And so some of the inherent illiteracy that came out from that type of, of uh, teaching method produced the illiteracy, the illiteracy that that stereotype is based off of. Okay. That also plays into people who maybe have dyslexia or other things. Right, right. The point is, if you want to put information and hide it from people nowadays, no matter what their color is, put it in a book. Right. Because people, people aren't, aren't really read reading, right. and especially with the advent of Twitter and other things. You don't have the the attention span. You got 90 seconds. You can't really develop a lot of these ideas in 90 seconds. Right. But the people this stuff is aimed for, they're not going through the same educational process that the average person would go through. That's what we just pointed out with 95 percent of the population is being schooled in a way that makes them resistant to getting this new information. Whereas 0.5 percent of the population is being schooled in a way where they are taught this stuff directly. That's interesting. Right. And the, just to, to speak to that just a little bit more. Um, like the secret societies and colleges and stuff. Like if you look at Skull and Bones, a lot of Skull and Bones people are in high positions of authority all throughout America. Right. And that's a minute amount or a minute percentage of the population that have that. I mean, you could argue against, well, that doesn't really work. But if you look, you know, there's statistically, documented, statistically right. those people that got a different or esoteric type of education are in those positions of power to make decisions for the rest of us. Right. It, it's kind of a, a difficult thing to argue your way out of. It is. But with, so re-engineering society. So we get that the, the school's a little bit messed up or whatever, but still this is a kind of a large task. Now we're, we're poking at it, but how, how do you re-engineer society anyway? 
not that I'm a mastermind and have the formula, um, but I, there's something I read in uh, in a book by Barrett Barrett Choles, um, where she outlined a few of the calculated steps necessary to achieve social reengineering. Uh, in the book she did, Brave New Schools, which I would highly recommend if you are the least bit interested in what our school systems are supposed to be, what they've been documented uh, and intended to be, check this book out. This is one of a couple that we'll probably recommend uh, during this episode, but highly recommend you get this. Broad stroke speaking, um, you want to rewrite history to discredit nationalism and promote globalism. This subtly supports the idea of oneness or, or false unity. You want to teach new quote unquote thinking skills um, based on feelings and experience as opposed to fact and reason. This is derived from the progressive educational method. Uh, you want to encourage loyalty to peers and teachers and not family and churches. This helps to promote consensus or group thinking, which is the antithesis to individuality. You want to immerse students in global beliefs and values, which is another example of groupthink. Condition students to serve a greater whole, which again reduces individuality. And block opposition to the new global paradigm, which protects the system and the status quo. Broad strokes. Okay. Uh, more focused steps here. You want to present palatable, palatable versions of target beliefs. So if you got a belief idea that you want, break it up so okay. the person can swallow it and they will, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They will cumulatively put this together and get to the belief system that you want them to have. You want to dismantle the student's priorly held beliefs. Uh, you want to blend new beliefs with science to add credibility. Okay. And this is a major one because right now in our culture, you slap science says, on anything. And it's automatically given the weight of this is infallible truth. Right. You can't question it. Uh -uh. Trust the science. Science said it's pink outside. Must be pink. My eyes must be broke. Must be. Trust the science, the science says your eyes are good, too. <laughs> so now, now you're stuck. Oh, yeah. And if you contest this, what, you don't believe in science? They don't right. ask you. You don't believe in the truth. Right. You don't believe it's in science. science. And you get enough people asking you this, it's group pressure. So there's a pressure to conform to group thought. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. So you want to redefine words to fit the new belief system this is a very dangerous tactic. Yeah. They don't give you new words. You just take old words and redefine them. And the problem with that is that people assume you're talking about the same thing. Right. But you're, and you're not. not, which is so it's critical. If you get in a debate with anyone is to define terms to make sure you're talking about the same thing. Absolutely. That that's functionally critical. Right. Because it brings everybody on the same page, but also it clarifies the issue. So it removes the opportunity for deception to lurk. Right. You want to rewrite history, which we talked about a moment ago. Provide mystical experiences that contradict old beliefs. Huh. You, you want to immerse students in enticing forms of the new belief. You want to use target beliefs to answer questions traditionally answered by the former belief system. And then finally, demand absolute purity or fealty to the system. Huh. And every time I hear that word, I think John Wick. Why? Fealty to the high high table. Because <laughs> it was the whole system was built on. Right. It was their code. And if above above anything else, even if you're a murderous assassin, you have a code. You have a a system that you work by. And okay. this system is really no different. It 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 demands complete conformity. 
And it's funny that purity's here. We have the same concept in Christianity. We just call it holiness. Right. Huh. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. So all this is done to bring conformity to uh, a new normal, a new standard of expectation in order to get a person to embrace such a progressive norm, you would first have to fracture their mind. You got to start rewiring their brain. And that's exactly what the Luciferian establishment is attempting to do by developing and even, quote unquote, forcing the adoption of the progressive educational method. All right. Let's talk about John Dewey. John Dewey. John Frederick Dewey. Well, he's considered by many to be one of the most influential educational reformers of the 20th century. He's commonly referred to as the father of progressive education, but he is the father of much, much more. Like Satan and the devil's advocate. Here's that scene where Keanu Reeves, you know, he calls him, uh, he's like, who are you? And Al Pacino's character is, oh, I've got so many names. <laughs> Call me dad. Call me dad. So wait, John Dewey is the hand up Mona Lisa's skirt? Is that yeah, out of all the lines in that movie, <laughs> that's the one you want to go with. You remember him better than I do. I have yeah, to just notice pick. how I didn't pick that one. <laughs> but yeah, pretty pretty much. Uh, okay. He's the thing you don't see coming. All right. You know, it, it's a very innocuous, slow process, this whole thing that he designed, the progressive educational model. Um, he's He's the one that you really got to be looking at with skeptical spiritual eyes going what, what what you doing over there right well i mean and like you said it's slow so i think it started in the the late 1800s okay he and his socialist colleagues decided to embark on a long-range conspiracy which doesn't exist right yeah conspiracies don't it's not conspiracies real conspiracies aren't real right right no. right so <laughs> uh a conspiracy to radically change america by imposing their own utopian vision of a collectivist society. Hmm. His instructional method, which was called progressive education, was intended to replace traditional biblically inspired standards, which up until this point, our whole education relied heavily on. Does is, that like surprise you? What? The notion that they're in biblically inspired standards of education. It does. Like, even though we've looked into it, it it's so. You've been so trained to think that the Bible is not, a source of knowledge and structured thinking right. by, by the world. Yeah, you have to pick faith or facts. Right. And the, the modern church doesn't do a good job of fighting that, in my opinion. Right. I don't think they do. Yeah. But traditionally, before this movement in the late 1800s, education was based off these biblically inspired standards. Okay. Like factual analysis, rationality, objective truth, and the central focus of family family and a pupil's upbringing. You know, progressive education, on the other hand, is, is contradictory to this. It's a humanist-inspired instructional method that displaces parents and teachers as guardians of objective truth and instead aspires to shift students towards using experience and feeling to derive truth and meaning. Okay. Humanist. What, what's humanism? You know, humanism... <laughs> is an outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human, human rather than divine or supernatural matters. You know, humanist beliefs stress the potential value and goodness of human beings. They emphasize common human needs and they seek soul, solely rational ways of solving human problems. Essentially, uh, and when, when you hear the term rational, it's code for non-biblical. 
Okay. So essentially humanism is about making man God. And by way of that, by extension of that, all the things that man thinks, feels, and all become divine in nature, and they be, they carry the weight of divinity. So they okay. become what's what's imperative. They become what you use as a standard of measure. Everything is about man. Man's considered inherently good. So there's no real such thing as sin. Right. Uh, he's considered inherently able to solve his own problems just if he thinks hard enough about it. And man then is capable of creating his own utopia. That makes sense. Yeah, it'd be nice if man was inherently good. It'd make parenting a lot easier. Well, here's the correct. It would, right? <laughs> and but you can watch and just watch a ba- a little human being, uh-huh. and you immediately see that this this rationale doesn't hold up. It doesn't. Here's what's scary, though: humanists got together and formed the Humanist Association, uh, and once they created the Humanist Manifesto, and there's been three iterations of that. Okay. The original Humanist Manifesto, Humanist Manifesto One, John Dewey was an original signer. Oh, huh. So it's not just looking back through history and calling him a humanist. He identified with humanism and took those values and views and embedded those into his system of education. Interesting. We know it ticks me off, though. What's that? The idea of separation of church and state. Okay. The idea of separation of church and state, which is an erroneous idea. Right. Supposedly, you should be able to separate your belief systems from your life. Right. It makes no sense. But that's not what he's doing. He's literally taking his belief systems and blending them in with what else he thinks they should be. That That's important. But it's OK because it's not formally a church. It's, it's OK because it's not Christian. Right. It's not. And, and by Christian, let me let me take that out. It's OK because it's not biblical. We no. don't want the Bible. Right. Can't have that. Right. Not at all. Steps on too many toes. Absolutely. So. This whole thing about uh, this, um, this method of teaching people based on experience and feelings in order to derive truth and meaning, this is really an emotional instruction method. Okay. That's why nowadays when you ask someone a question about what they think, and you cannot imagine how much this irritates me. It, but when but you ask someone what they think and they give you an answer that starts with, I feel. Yeah. It, it's, it's difficult, though. I've done it. I've done and it, it still irritates me. <laughs> in a couple of test recordings of a podcast. Yeah. You're like, do you think? And I was like, well, I feel like, oh, man. I'm like, I didn't ask that. <laughs> I want to know what you think. Yeah. it's But that those ideas are so embedded. Right. That it, it takes intentional effort to, to think about what you're thinking about. It does. And not uh, just feel a certain way. And you get used to not thinking that way because almost everything that we're asked nowadays we can respond back with, I feel right. And you'll see this even, you know, with politicians, you'll see it with newscasters. You'll see it with the quote unquote experts. People will be talking about what they feel. Yeah. It's crazy. It's actually been one of the biggest pitfalls of progressive education. Truth has moved from the realm of factual analysis and objectivity to a world of sentimentalism where we can be manipulated with all of the fanfare and pompous that a circus permits like, because if, if what you, if how you think about something is just how you feel, I mean, we wake up and feel a different way every day. Right. It, it's, it's crazy. You know, just watch the nightly news or any political debate and you can see the theater. The scariest part, though, at least for me, is that people don't even realize that they think or that they're feeling where they should be thinking. Right. They don't. They don't realize that they think with their feelings. Right. Right. And it's something I have to try and discipline myself constantly 
to not do. I have to try to train that out of me. And I know some of the people next to me probably get annoyed with that um, every time where I'm like, you what? Did you just say you feel? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. Like, no, tell me you think. And I love what the historian Richard Grove said, that the greatest barrier to discovery is not ignorance. It is the illusion of knowledge. And that's what the 15,000 hours of compulsory schooling, training, and conditioning really does to us. You know, progressive education was intended to be the mechanism that began shifting Western society away from a biblical knowledge-based uh, educational system and towards an occult influence system that would give the pupil the illusion of knowledge. Uh, and that would fit perfectly within the coming new world order. You know, it was supposed to take biblical truth and replace that with earth centered myths. It took facts and replaced that with experience and feeling observation with imagination. It replaced logic with speculation and feelings, science with politicized pseudoscience, reality with fantasy, you know, factual history with fictional or multicultural stories, objective thinking with objective or subjective feeling and individual responsibility with groupthink. This non-progressive educational system was actually a stopgap in getting the youth of today ready to be the global citizens of tomorrow. And we all know that that type of a world has absolutely no place for God and neither will a global student of the future. Because progressive education is really a humanist placeholder on the way to the global pantheism that America is apparently embracing. Just consider what globalist and new new order advocate President George H.W. Big Daddy Bush, number 41, said when he announced his globalist inspired America 2000 education agenda. Nations that stick to stale old notions and ideologies which is biblically based traditional values will falter and fail. So I'm here to say America will move forward. New schools for a new world reinvent, literally start from scratch and reinvent the American school. Our challenge amounts to nothing less than a revolution in American education. And that's exactly what we're getting today. An education system polluted with weapons of mass instruction, occult instruction. You know, we used to have Christianity, uh, as the the principal basis of our culture, right? Right, right. But now that's changed to humanism on its way to globalism. Okay. You now the Bible used to be the standard that revealed reality. Now it's moved to science explains reality. It's on its way to feelings and experience will define reality. Yeah, we are right on the precipice of that. Right on it. You know, God is transcendent and personal. Now God is non-existent, a non-existent crutch in our thinking. But it's moving toward a pantheistic God or goddess of force, which is present in all. You hear that term, force. Mm -hmm. Think about the fact that one of the most famous franchises in movie history is built on the idea of the force. Right. Which is Star Wars. Yep. And when you listen to George Lucas and he's asked about what he thought about God, he expressed pantheistic views. The idea that all roads lead to God. Right. That's not true. And it's it's so upsetting because I love Star Wars. Right. But now I can't help but wonder if Star Wars was really one of the biggest, if not the biggest players to um, depersonalize the Holy Spirit. Interesting. That he's not a person. It's just this force that surrounds us and binds right. us. Oh, man. 
yeah, that's going to stick. So God created the earth was another core idea. And now that's moved to the earth evolved by random chance. And it's going to the earth evolves by its own cosmic power. You know, it used to be that trusting God's key to the success. Now it's trusting self is the key to success. And it will move towards trusting one's inner God self will be the key to success. Okay. Sounds like an Oprah-like idea. Right. You know, it used to be that good and evil are incompatible. Now good and evil are relative. But it's moving towards joining good and evil will bring wholeness. That's scary. That's, you're right. Progressive education represents really the vilest act of educational malpractice our country has ever seen, ever. Its implementation can be described as nothing short of actual child abuse. No, I I would agree. And it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just a shift in the zeitgeist, which is the spirit of the world. Okay. Um, And it wasn't a restructuring of a philosophy, but the attacks on children came by way of detrimental curriculum as well. Not just thoughts floating around. Um, but the replacement of phonetic learning with sight reading or any hybrid in between like whole language or invented spelling. It was a tried and true way of reducing literacy in America. Okay. What's whole language or invented spelling? Okay. So I'll actually give a shout out to my wife on this cause we were doing some research for the show gotcha. and, uh, she had uh, done some more me- recent reading than I had. And I was like, um, uh, can you help me out with this? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what these things are. So uh, we can thank her for her for her input. Shout out to Kayla Dane. Right. <clears throat> so whole language is really uh, the idea of learning words as a whole instead of their constituent parts um, and, and, and claiming that that's more important than phonetics, that okay. you don't need to know how to sound out a word. You just learn the word and that's it. Okay. And then invented spelling is allowing children to write what words sound like um, versus how they're actually spelled. And this, you can run into to issues like with Socrates, isn't actually spelled <laughs> the way that it sounds. I didn't say anything, Christopher. <laughs> I didn't say anything at all. Oh, that's funny. But you know, you might as well go ahead now. Yeah, yeah, since I opened that can <laughs> of worms. So we were studying one day and we were, we were looking up different philosophies. I, I don't even remember what it was about. But I was like, oh. We're this- studying the question of challenge everything. Oh, okay. And we tried to that's figure right. out where did that come from. Right. So we're looking up these different quotes and I saw all these quotes from this, this Socrates person. And I was like, I've never heard of this. So I kept, I was giving Jason the quotes and he was listening and he was like, who is that? And I was like, Socrates. He sat there just with this puzzled look on his face. Like there's no philosopher called Socrates. (laughs) And he stops me mid sentence and he's like, wait, 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 do you mean Socrates? Oh, Oh, it was the best moment ever. (laughs) It was so terrible. Oh, that was great. Oh, man. <laughs> so forever in his in my mind now, whenever I see it, Socrates is his name. I have to remember Socrates. Oh, it's so embarrassing. Hey, we can't win them all, I guess. Uh, you know, it keeps us humble. <laughs> but the so going back here, the dangers of these different um, uh, teaching methods is that when you begin to step away from phonetic learning, which is a processed, uh, process through the left hemisphere of the brain, it results in hemispheric dissonance. Okay. So there's actually two areas of the brain designed to process language, which is Broca's area, which is the primary center for expression of language, and then Winrich's area, which processes the comprehension. So you kind of have an in and out, um, areas of the brain that are specific for that. And both of those areas are in the left hemisphere. 
sight reading because it simply assesses the shape of the word. So the, the aesthetics of what it looks like. You're not using the left brain at all. You're using the right brain. Okay. So you're kind of, you're, you're tricking the brain and it, it causes hemispheric dissonance. The right side of the brain is used um, shapes and aesthetics. Sight reading hijacks that and forces the aesthetics part of your brain to process language. Are you kidding me? Nope. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you what, man. John Dewey and his cohort, uh, Edmund Huey, and if I find out that there's a Louie involved in this process, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna lose it. You right. know, especially with that whole rich uncle motif, uh, which sounds like a Rockefeller. Right, sure you know, does. It's gonna make me look at ducktails totally different. <laughs> right. We're one duck away. One from duck from layout. getting it in a row and figuring out what they was talking about. But whoever else helped design this 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 curriculum had to be demonically influenced. Had to be. Look, you'd have to have an intimate understanding of the workings of the brain and the mind to devise a plan that so dastardly destroys it. Right. You'd have to have that understanding. And in the book, um, The Crimes of Our Educators by Samuel Blumenfield and our man Alex Newman, mm -hmm. they show a, a causal relationship between sight reading and dyslexia. And this is the result from the two hemispheres of the brain becoming confused about what operation they're supposed to be doing. Hmm. that this could really be the core of dyslexia. So Blumenfield has actually been able to correct dyslexia in several students through a curriculum focused on phonics. I don't think it's hooked on phonics, <laughs> <laughs> but it's focused on phonics. All right. This is able to retrain the brain to function correctly. This correction gives subst substantial evidence that sight reading, at least in part, is the cause of dyslexia. So, but even before the study revealed the dangers, the dangers of sight reading and, and whole word learning and all of that, it had been rejected many times for causing illiteracy. So like mm. they didn't have the, you know, science has to prove everything. They didn't have the backing of, of this research. Okay. But they had several times in many schools they had seen um, that children got illiterate in, instead of improving literacy. Okay. Um, and many times those that sought ill will towards our children tried to implement, full well knowing what it did, tried to implement this curriculum over time. Yet again and again, it was rejected for stunting learning. Really? Yeah. But it's, it's deceitful because here's what happens. It appears as though your children learn faster. Okay. So when, when you apply the, the tactics of sight reading, when you first start, there's a huge jump. So you go from not being able to read at all to to being able to read at, at amazing speeds. Okay. And then all of a sudden, once you've, you've learned your, your vocabulary or whatever, it halts your learning ability. So you reach a, a, a threshold. Right, because you don't know, you can't sound out words, you can't, you know, anytime you're introduced to something new, you hit a roadblock. Wow. Yeah. It doesn't give the individual tools to discover the new words. So you just, you dead end. That's crazy. Didn't um, Dr. Seuss have something to do with all of that, though? Actually, yes. So uh, he wrote The Cat in the Hat, one of his most uh, popular works. I'm sure a bunch of people have heard of him. If not, I mean, I don't know if I should recommend it or not. <laughs> but there's at this point, there's no way you haven't heard of Dr. Seuss. Right. Uh, but he was talking about his work, The Cat in the Hat, in this interview. And this is what he said. He said, they think I did it in 20 minutes. That damn cat in the hat took nine months until I was satisfied. And I did it for a textbook house and they sent me a word list. And that was due 
to the Dewey Revolt in the 20s in which they threw out phonics and went to word recognition, as if you're reading Chinese pictographs instead of blending sounds of different letters. And, and this is what Dr. Seuss said, who was, who was paid through this textbook house to, to put books together for sight reading. He said, I think killing phonics was one of the greatest causes of illiteracy in the country. Wow. Yeah, I had no idea that Seuss, I had heard a couple of things, but I had no idea that he was involved like this. Yeah. Uh, that makes me wonder, though, if sight reading can have other effects on the brain. Well, funny you ask that. Jason, <laughs> Alex Newman, he, he further suggests that um, in the 88 ADHD uh, debate, it can actually be a result from sight reading as well. So just as when you, you eat something that's not good for you, which my wife is always telling me to, to stop eating these things because they might not be good for me. Okay. I'm like, ah, if it doesn't have mold on it, it'll be all right. Right. <clears throat> but, but when you do that, the mind recognizes, um, it, you spit it up, sorry. W when you eat something you shouldn't, you get sick. Right. Happen, or drink too much, you get sick. If it's not good, this is how your body learns to deal with it. So if sight reading is detrimental, the mind can recognize that the same way and try to reject what it is that you're taking in. Okay. And this is what this is what ADHD looks like. An inability to focus. Fascinating. Yeah. So the mind tries desperately to dislodge the substance, and it does this by shifting focus. And continual exposure of this kind results in a total collapse of an individual's ability to focus because of the survival mechanism triggered by hemispheric dissonance. Wow. In most cases, this will result in the medication of young children with powerful psychiatric drugs, which layer damage over damage. Because just remember, <clears throat> real people actually chose to do this to our children. They knew right. every step of the way it wasn't an accident, and they did it all under the guise of advancement through the ideas of this progressive education. You know, I was talking with uh, Kim from Lancelot's Roundtable. Okay. And she was telling me about, uh, she homeschools and she was telling me about some of the things that she was studying. And we got to talking actually about sight reading and the damage that it does and how you learn to just take in words as a whole without any relation to other words. And I told her, I said, that's so interesting because I wasn't taught to read that way, but that is the way that I tend to define words. Okay. When I think about a definition, uh, it's normally sight definition. I just memorized the definition for that word. Okay. Words don't have relations to others. And so I remember I was talking uh, a while ago with uh, my, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, C. Burke, and we were sitting there having a conversation about definitions and things. And he uh, turned me on to this site called Mebian.com. And it's M-E-M-B-E-A-N.com. Okay. And I had never heard of it before, but what it does is it teaches students to look at words based on their construction in order to derive a definition about it. Okay. And is that the, the etymology? Is that the right, the etymology of the word, how it's put together? Is it, am I close here? I think etymology has to do more with word usage over time. Okay. That's well, what I, I think it has to. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're looking at, at its structure. Gotcha. Uh, as, as opposed to just a dictionary definition, which is more of a, a, a cooperative definition is what we agree on. Right. That it means this, this is, is what actually- we know, what, This is what we know the word is, and this is what we all think it means. Right. Okay. This is actually looking at that. So one of my favorite examples 
um, to realize that words are built off of roots is to like use the, the root ject. Okay. We've all, J-E-C-T, it's not really a word that we use a lot. Right. But we have words that are built off of that. Okay. Like ject means to throw. So a project means to throw forth, like a projector. Okay. Uh, an object means to throw in the way. If you have a subject, you throw under. If you inject something, you throw it in. If you reject something, you throw it back. Uh, if you eject something, you throw it out. Huh. If you traject something, like a trajectory, is to throw it along a path. It's supposedly how NASA was able to do a lot of their work. Okay. You know, if you have a conjecture, it's where you throw things, a guess where things are thrown together. Okay. You see all this stuff is is based on that? That's if, sweet. If you're dejected, you're thrown down. Okay. Like, it's actually super dope when you start realizing right. the relationship. And it makes a lot of sense. It does. Now, here's what caught my attention. We talked about earlier breaking up this idea of things being related. Right. And this is an example. We don't teach the relation of words in the 95 percentile of education. Right. There is a percentage where they do teach that more. Interesting. But this is hidden from the mass majority of people. Right. Which means your structure and how you think about things is also compartmentalized and broken down. Right. And really where that gets to is the fact that God is a God of relationship. He's a God of connection. He's okay. a God of things being together. Right, right. Satan works by the opposite, trying to break things up. Huh. Right? Yeah. That's that, why. That's I, an interesting concept. It is. You know, I remember one time I was looking at, I'm, I'm in astronomy a lot, and I was looking at the interconnected web of galaxies when you put it against a map of maybe dark matter. Okay. And the way that scientists look at this, it actually looks like a map of the human brain. Okay. Like neurons actually interconnected. Right. The human brain is a perfect example. It It is an actual network of things being connected. And when that begins to get severed, you have diseases or problems that show up in your mind and in your brain. Interesting. Relationship is key. Huh. All right. So in all that, we have to remember that our education was intended to capitalize on the Prussian attempt to usurp the parent gods, uh, God's given responsibility to rear their children with God-centered, biblically-based kingdom worldview, and instead replace it with Satan's supposed right to raise the pupil with a atheistically-centered, nationalistic-based socialist worldview. You said Satan. Did you mean the states, right? Did I say sa Satan? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but well, the states, right. They're synonymous. <laughs> right, right. But no, right, the, the states, my mistake, yeah, the states, right. Okay. So this worldview, world, wow, worldview, this worldview would produ produce, jeez, would produce educational atrocities such as a rising national illiteracy rate, which don't, 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 don't mind my mistakes are on the podcast has nothing to do with that. You were homeschooled, right? <laughs> we're, we're way smarter than all those other people. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was an easy jab. Oh, wow. That's, that's brutal. <laughs> uh, a rampant neurological dysfunction of the brain, which would lead to a rise in dyslexia, an increased ADD, ADHD, 
and the unnecessary drugging of millions of school children, which would open them up to the pharmaceutical industries and the deep occult ties to sorcery and witchcraft. A war against biblical religion and morality, a preoccupation with death and suicide, a decline in the power of reasoning and logic, falling worldwide rankings in math, science, and reading, an unbelievable increase in school violence, shootings, and massacres, and the misuse of billions of dollars in taxpayer monies, just to name a few. You know, let, let me say this, though. When, when you're dealing with the national education system, not every player is a Satanist. Not, not every person's a globalist or out to intentionally hurt our children. The problem with applying Lane, you know, these, these, these broad strokes to people is that it can have the unfortunate effect of reducing the humanity, their humanity, to the label itself, which makes it easier to vilify them. So there are over 3.2 million educators in the United States educational system alone, and it'd be incredibly irresponsible of us to almost criminalize or demonize each and every one of them in a broad stroke attempt to reveal the sinister workings of a select few. Right. Right. So, but on the whole, most educators are actually deeply concerned about the student and their development. And they're probably unaware of the true nature of the system that they're employed in and were educated by themselves. Right. So I, I have to think about that a lot when I'm going through and doing research about this type of stuff. Right. You know what I mean? And even in my, my own scholastic uh, journey, I was blessed to have really good teachers. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Right. Um, I remember I had one teacher, my second grade teacher, Miss Bauer. She was instrumental in making sure that my parents understood that I wasn't a problem child. I was actually just ahead. Okay. Um, she also was the one she wrote. My, my mother gave me one of the things she saved from her. And she wrote this little post-it note that said, Jason, just because I correct you doesn't mean I don't care about you. That's super cool. Right. I'm like, yeah, that, that type of stuff is, is super important. It is. And I think we still have teachers like that. You know, I had teacher, my fourth grade teacher, Ms. Blank. She made me feel safe at school at a time where I felt rejected. Okay. You know, I remember running into one of my science teachers in middle school who made me feel, I didn't run into him in middle school, it was late years later. But I remember stopping him. I saw him at a gas station. And I said, what's your name? And he was like, Bartels. I said, you a teacher? Yeah. At this time, I'm working for an armored car company. <laughs> so I don't look that approachable. Right, right. And, I mean, I, I think I scared the guy. <laughs> he hadn't seen me in years. Uh, and I told him, I identified myself, told him who I was, and told him how much I appreciated his class. That's cool. You know what I mean? You, you got to have teachers like that. You got teachers that are super important to how we we think going forward. You know, I had a history teacher, Mr. Simpson. He's the one that I learned the idea that two-thirds of the population is incompetent. Okay. One-third is competent. One-third controls the two-thirds. Two-thirds have to be told what to think, what to laugh at, what to feel. Like in our sitcoms, there are laugh tracks right. that are put in there so that you know to laugh because you're too dumb. <laughs> Right, to, to find that this, that this funny. is funny. That's I'm nuts. like, this is nuts. They have to be told what to drink, what to eat, what to buy, what games to watch. All of this, their control. And it's not a one-third, two-third anymore. It's a much higher ratio. Right. He's the one that, you know, start to open my eyes to these are the things that are going on behind the scenes. He even said that it's not accidental that you guys 
30 of you are in my first period class. You guys have been intentionally put here on a track. You don't think there's a difference between my first period and my ninth period class? Come back in ninth period. I came back in ninth period. It is a total difference. All of them being put in the same history class, but the schools arranged it based on certain parameters. That's crazy. You're here intentionally. Yeah. So you, you need, you have to recognize that there really are good Good teachers out there. I, I've had a few good teachers. Okay. In one of our homeschool groups, uh, I, I don't know his last name. We just called him Pastor Bob. Okay. Uh, he ran a, a homeschool group. And I was actually failing a couple of my um, courses that I was on. But he had the insight. He told my mom, he's like, he's, he's not failing because he's dumb. He's failing because this is uninteresting to him. So he suggested that I was failing one grade. He's like, go up to the next grade. And she's like, so he's failing, but you want me to give him harder things to do? He's okay. like, absolutely. Put me in that other stuff. And I immediately started scoring better. So he had, I, I wouldn't have known that as a kid. I didn't know the reason that I was not doing well because I didn't care about it. But it was really cool to have an educator that knows the dynamics of learning well enough to go, no, he just needs to be challenged more. And it's going to keep him engaged. Hmm. Uh, I, I had a, uh, a math professor in college, uh, Mr. Mummy. <laughs> he was cool. He had a sweet personality, but, um, he actually showed me, now don't ask me how to do it today, Okay. but there's a way that you can write out square roots and come to the, like, find your answer. Cause I mean, outside of that, you use a calculator or you just guess and check. Like, is this, you know, is this close? But there was actually a process of writing it out. I'd never been told that before. So here okay. I was in college level math and he's like, no, you can actually write it out like this. I was like, well, that's I didn't sweet. know that. Yeah. Like I said, don't don't ask me what it is. No, but, but I'm I'm really curious. Way, it's very similar to division. The way you set up like division. Okay. Um, it's like that, but just slightly altered, and you can get square roots that way. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and then uh, I had a music teacher, Yuri Bortz, uh, PhD, and uh, he he would always go on these long rants, which a lot of the kids didn't like. You know, if you're just there to get the credit or whatever, then right, you right. don't appreciate more learning. But I remember one day I came in the next day and I was like, uh, Dr. Yuri. And he's like, uh, yeah, what's going on? I was like, so yesterday you were talking, you were talking about something and Galileo's, when it, like his son or something was involved in it. And he's like the Florentine camarada. I was like, that's it. He was like, you were listening during, <laughs> during that part. <laughs> he was completely surprised that I was listening and actually cared what he said. So it was cool that he had all this extra information surrounding just the, the base core work that we had to do. No, it's definitely cool, man, to have teachers like that. That's hilarious. I mean, <laughs> I know what it's like to be able to go on a little rant and you wonder if somebody's paying attention to you. <laughs> so I know that had to make him feel totally cool. Right. It's interesting, though. Schools today, they seem to be less proficient at actually educating students. Right. You know, then they are at preparing them for their station in life. For sure. Um, one of the most decorated educators of our time realized that there's a problem that's going on after spending years in education, uh, years as an educator. Okay. There is a, a real problem with the means and methods that we use to instruct our students. And he flipped his entire instructional approach. And ended up winning all of these awards because he didn't do it based on the way the system says you're supposed to educate children. Okay. His name is John Taylor Gatto. You ever heard of him? 
No, I haven't. So, uh, Gata was a school teacher in, in New York in Community School District 3, where after teaching for 13 years in all five secondary schools in the district, he transferred to City University of New York as a lecturer in its education department, where he consistently ranked first among 250 other education educator faculties uh, members and the student faculty ratings for all five years while he was there. That's impressive. Right. But after, after that, after planning and bringing about the most successful permanent school fundraiser in New York City, after helping a single eighth grade class perform 30,000 hours of volunteer community service, after organizing and financing a student-run food cooperative, securing more than 1,000 apprenticeships, and directing the collection of tens of thousands of books for the construction of private student libraries, after producing four talking job dictionaries for the blind, writing two original student musicals, and launching an armada of other initiatives to reintegrate students into a larger human reality. After being recognized as New York State Teacher of the Year, he quit in the same year. Wow. Why? Because he realized that he could no longer continue teaching lessons that destroy the minds of students. Seven lessons in particular that every teacher from Harvard to Stanford teaches, whether they realize it or not. They're part of a national curriculum that we pay for in many ways than what we can even imagine. And Gatto was an expert on teaching him. That's why he won awards for it. Huh. So let's talk about him. Yeah, hit me with him. Lesson number one, confusion. Gatto says, the first lesson I teach is confusion. Everything I teach is out of context. I teach the unrelating of everything. I teach disconnections. I teach too much. The orbiting of planets, the large, the law of large numbers, slavery, adjectives, architectural drawing, dance, gymnasium, choir singings, assemblies, surprise guests, fire drills, computer languages, parents nights, staff development days, pullout programs, guidance with strangers my students may never see again, standardized tests, age segregation, unlike anything seen in the outside world. I teach the unrelating of everything, an infinite fragmentation, the opposite of cohesion. What I do is more related to television programming than to making a scheme of order. In a world where home is only a ghost because both parents work or both because both are too, there's too many moves or too many job changes or too much ambition or because something else has left everybody too confused to maintain a family relation. I teach you how to accept confusion as your destiny. That's the first lesson I teach. Wow. That's heavy. Super. You know, confusion, he, he goes on to say the confusion is taught by the arbitrary content content of the curriculum, beginning with whole language and invented spelling, which we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah, that's the foundation. That's crazy. It is. The, the foundation um, is how you learn. Like, not just what. In, in, in how you go about it, but like within yourself, the, the confusion of language. Right. That's crazy. And well, here's what's really sad. Children don't have the ability to put into words or define the internal panic that they have to feel by being subjected to a system like this, you know, and the anger that would, would come about as a result from that, you know, that's a whole violation of natural order and the sequence of how things that should be done that they're forced to undergo. That's horrible. It's almost like, like cows. Yeah, but it's like you said before, that's child abuse. To Absolutely. Put them in that state. Right. You know, meaning should be the outcome of education, not 
disconnected facts. Right. That's what we were talking about earlier with relationship. Right. That's how you derive meaning. And if you're constantly breaking it up, then you don't get actually what the meaning is, which is kind of funny. Evolution would do that by nature. Right. That's interesting. And that's the core basis, as we were talking about last week. Right. Of our entire educational system. So, lesson two, class position. The second lesson I teach is class position. I teach that students must stay in the class where they belong. I don't know who decides my kids belong there, but that's not my business. The children are numbered so that if any get away, they can be returned to the right class. The lesson of numbered classes is that everyone has a proper place in the pyramid and that there's no way out of your class except by number magic. Failing that, you must stay where you're put. Wow. Makes the the walls of a classroom really seem like... Prison. Prison. Right. Yeah. And in prison, each person gets a number. Yeah. Huh. It's just more in your face. Right. You know, numbering children is actually a, a very big and profitable undertaking because it generates federal and state funding, and it also aids in generating false categories. Okay. And these false categories are necessary for the system, right? Okay. You got, in most school systems, I don't want to go as far as to say all, but these are typical ways of dividing up children. Okay. Um, number one, gifted and talented with honors. Okay. Number two, gifted and talented. And then special progress. Number four, mainstream. Number five, special ed. That fifth one has a cash value to the school three times higher than what other, the others do, providing a genuine incentive to find fatal learning, quote unquote, defects where none may actually exist. Wow. Each of these categories is subdivided into A, B, C, and D. Okay. So where a child falls might be special progress A, might be gifted and talented D. Okay. You know, there's a value for each one. Interesting. And it's not based on inherent value from a creator savior that thinks you're worth saving. Right. It's just based, based on how you actually interact with their curriculum. Right. Wow. And you know, you're spot on there. And that's a good insight because the real thing is that typically the children who are that don't make it into the gifted and talented, the ones that are lower on the system, like mainstream, uh -huh. typically are the ones that don't conform well to the system. They're not necessarily dumb or unintelligent. Right. They're just anti-conformity. Right. Huh. And not necessarily maybe anti-authority, but this particular type that is so uh, offensive to how we're, so, you know, our internal construct. Okay. They buck against. And it's a way for the system to identify dissonance, to weed it out. And shut it down before it has a, a Absolutely. Chance. Like uh, Shere Khan getting Mowgli before he actually becomes a threat. Right. It's wow. how you do it. And then you have group shaming that's in there, you know. Don't be a guy who's, who's, who's uh, identified as maybe mainstream uh, or special ed and then be trying to look for a date from a girl saying gifted and talented. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't think mainstream or special ed, That's which crazy. is a new form of social punishment. Right. Especially if you've been trained to think classes, yeah. you know, think about how, when you do, when they do the, um, the candy wars, candy sales. Okay. Our class versus that class. Yeah. It teaches you competition. 
I don't know if you if you had that while you were in school. Uh, a little bit. I didn't get involved a whole lot. Okay. Yeah, they do that like every year. Interesting. If they're if we're buying books, who can raise the most money for the books program? You're constantly in competition. Okay. And they t- they teach competition. They don't necessarily teach cooperation. So that would that would lead into like Marxism's conflict theory. That yeah. Everything is about having power over someone else. Right. Or having more candy or mm-hmm. whatever. Interesting. You know, in spite of the overall class blueprint, like uh, Gatto pointed out, which assumes that it, it assumes that ninety nine percent of the kids are in their class to stay. Nevertheless, as a teacher, he would still try to exhort them to higher levels of test success. And and uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hinting at eventual transfer from the lower class as a reward. So it's constantly putting that carrot in front of you. Right. You know, you, you can, can make you it. You can move out, but you really you can't. Nah, nah, you really can't. That's vicious. Yeah, numbering children enhances class position and reinforces class division because it helps substantiate arbitrary academic labels as gifted and talented or learning disabled or special needs. Okay. Jumping back in here, uh, I just thought, uh, you know, about the different classes and everything being conflict. Even the game Monopoly is you're set against all the other players to make them go bankrupt so you can have a Monopoly. Uh, But there is a game, I haven't played it, but I want to try. It's called Anti-Monopoly, that you actually start where you're all regular citizens working against a Monopoly, and you have to work together to make sure the Monopoly doesn't exist at the end of the game. Interesting. Yeah. So lesson three, indifference. The third lesson I teach kids is indifference. I teach children not to care about anything too much, even though they want to make it appear as though I I do. How I do this is very subtle. I do it by demanding that they become totally involved in my lessons. But when the bell rings, I insist they stop whatever it is that they've been working on and proceed quickly to the next workstation. They must turn on and off like a light switch. Nothing important is ever finished in my class, nor is any other class I know of ever finished with anything. Students never have a complete experience except on the installment plan. Jeez. So students actually have, I think, 300 seconds to change classes between the bells before being carted off to their next isolated cubicle of learning. Wow. Yeah, that can't be good. No, it's a Pavlonian technique. It teaches nothing's worth finishing. Life or anyone else's life work is meaningless, so I care. Only care about what the system tells you to. <laughs> wow. You know, he, he, Gatto goes on to point out that uh, indifference is further instilled by teaching students that they are the product of evolution and have no special purpose in life. Logic and reason give way to emotion as the principal means of knowing. Th- that's a terrible combination. Right. It seems like the system is used in the military and in the prison industrial complex. Huh. Because it's an effective means of controlling behavior. That's crazy. And like with the Stanford experiment, it doesn't take long. No. Once you're put into that system to become what the system wants you to be. Right. Now, here's where people, they get upset. If I can show you that it's used in the military, I can show you it's used in the prison. Why is there a tendency to still defend it being used on your children? Right. When it's still the same government, you, you know, the, all the same people making those decisions. Well, they would ar- most people would argue with you that our schools are not about control. But the other two places where I told you it's used, they obviously are about control. Right. What makes it different here? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Yeah, I don't think there's a, a rational argument against that. But, I don't think so. Right, which means schools are about teaching you to conform to authority. Right. So, lesson number four that he teaches. Okay. Emotional damage. Every time I, I mean, actually, it was emotional dependency. But every time I read that, all I can hear is that dude, that me, uh, is this, this Asian dude, his dad. <laughs> it's always like when something bad happens to him. Emotional damage. <laughs> I've like, not seen that, but it sounds funny. Oh, dude, if we didn't get in trouble for doing clips, I'd play that one. <laughs> but the fourth, le- the fourth lesson I teach is emotional dependency. By stars and, and red checks, smiles and frowns, prizes, honors, and disgraces, I teach kids to surrender their will to the predestined chain of command. Rights may be granted or withheld by any authority without appeal, because rights do not exist inside a school, not even the right of free speech, as the Supreme Court has ruled. Unless school authorities say they do. Wow. So Gatto points out individuality is constantly trying to assert itself amongst students. But individuality is a contradiction of class theory, and it's a curse of all systems of classification. You do not want individuals. Right. You You want want them to all be the same. You do. To be proper citizens. Hence why you cut the hair off of everybody in the military, and you give them all the same uniform. And the prison, you give them the exact same uniform. We don't want you standing out. Right. But it also implies then that God creates individuals. Right. If you have to work against. Right. Wow. Okay. But again, this is not demonically influenced. Right. Can't be. Can't be. It's just how schools are. Now, rights may be, this is Gatto again, rights may be granted or withheld by any authority without appeal because rights do not exist inside a school, not even the right of free speech as the Supreme Court ruled. Unless in a school, uh, a school authority says they do. So the Supreme Court really said, like, you don't have free speech in school? Apparently so. I wasn't able to track that down Okay. Uh, in, in the preparation for this. I remember in, in fourth grade, uh, I had a shirt that said, Hell's for Wimps. I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, that's a little scary. <laughs> but um, I, I wore it to ch- to to I wore it to church. I wore it to school, and they told me I wasn't allowed to wear it. I mean, that's a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but they are able to make those types of calls. Right. That's interesting. I, it is. You don't think of it like you think that. Oh, you just have a standard of of dress code or or whatever right. or behavior. But really, uh, you don't think of it as a control mechanism. Right. Yeah, I feel you. Lesson number five intellectual dependency. The fifth lesson I teach is intellectual dependency. Good people wait for a teacher to tell them what to do. It is the most important lesson what we that we must wait for other people, better trained than ourselves, to make the meanings of our lives. The expert makes all the important choices. If I'm told that evolution is a fact instead of a theory, I transmit that as ordered, punishing deviants who resist what I might have been told to tell them to think. This power to control what children will think lets me separate successful students from failures very easily. That's interesting. And you made the connection of the military and the prisons before, but this is a tactic that's used in the military. Like any, I mean, not that TV is a good example, but you watch documentaries <laughs> about uh, people that go through boot camp or whatever. And mm-hmm. you, the idea is to only do exactly what you're told. Definitely nothing less, but you don't even do anything more only exactly what you're told all the time. So if it's the same process that's in school, I mean, again, like you said, it's about control. And it's kind of weird because you, it's not necessary to knock the concept of following instructions. 
Right. You know, yeah, there's a time to only do exactly what I tell you. If I tell you cut the red wire, do not cut the red in the blue wire, else you go kaplowy. Right. Um, so we're, we're not knocking that. But when you put a person in that type of environment, you expect them to be an active thinker. What this does is reduces that. Right. And, you know, we were watching the show The Unit. It was really interesting during selection process when they said that there are so many parts in this bucket to build four guns and one guy builds five. Right. And everybody who built four failed. But why? You said four. We built four. Because now I want a person who can think outside the box. Interesting, because every bit of their schooling up until that point has been about box thinking. Right. So what do you really want? You want a person you control, but is also semi able to think outside the box to be uncontrolled. And we'll see if we can manage that. Right. It's interesting. It is. So lesson number six, provisional self-esteem. The sixth lesson I teach is provisional self-esteem. I teach that your self-respect should depend on expert opinion. My kids are constantly evaluated and judged a monthly report Impressive in its provision is sent to students' homes to signal approval or to mark exactly down to a single percentage point how dissatisfied with their children parents should be. The lesson of report cards, grades, and tests is that children should not trust themselves or their parents, but should instead rely on the evaluation of certified officials. People need to be told what they are worth. And you can, you can see the detriment of that in, in grown adults in society today. You know, the, the, all of the trust, the science and all of that, but even your worth is maybe whether you're vaccinated or not. Yeah. We can't determine that. We have to wait for someone else, the trained people to tell you what you're worth and where you can go and what you can do. Right. You know, the cumulative weight of those documents, you know, interim reports, progressive report cards, uh, standardized tests, class assignments, they all establish a profile that compels children to arrive at certain decisions about themselves and their futures based on casual judgment of strangers. I experienced this. Okay. You know, you know what it's like when you get an A uh-huh. versus if you get an F. It's not just a arbitrary statement about your performance on that particular assignment. Mm-hmm. It's normally a statement about you. You know, that's interesting. I remember specifically, I had a test that I failed in middle school when I was in public school and I failed it and it, it crushed me. Right. And I, I, you know, took it personal and all of that, but there was this, I had this epiphany. I was like, it's just a test. This isn't about me. This isn't about who I am. It's literally just a test. Right. And ha- being able to have that thought was so freeing from the emotional bondage of, of not passing that particular test. No, I get it because I struggle with that even not just through primary and secondary. I struggle with that even in the college. Okay. You know, even when people introduce themselves or, or as you hear someone talking about a person, they're an A student. Mm. Okay, good. Good All for right. you. He's a D student. <laughs> There's an immediate judgment call that's put on there. Right. You know, you know where you fall in the pecking order. You know, here's the point that God makes. Good people wait for an expert to tell them what to do. It's hardly an exaggeration to say that an entire economy depends upon this lesson to be learned. Think of what would happen, how our economy would fall apart if people weren't trained to be dependent. The social service businesses could hardly survive. They'd, they'd vanish. Right. If people could actually learn to do for themselves. You can't have that. Right. What happens when provisional self-esteem is combined with emotional and intellectual dependency? 
I think you get a, a fractured identity identity that looks for some semblance of definition from a system that says they only have value so much as they can provide resources to be exploited by that system. That's interesting. That's uh, that's dangerous, right? It's scary. Right. And this is the system that we have in place right now. Huh. Lesson number seven. One can't hide. The seventh lesson I teach is that one can't hide. I teach children they are always watched, that each is under constant surveillance by myself and my colleagues. There are no private spaces for children. There is no private time. I assign a type of extended schooling called homework so that the effects of surveillance is realized by the child. If not, that surveillance itself travels into private households where children might otherwise use free time to learn something unauthorized from a father or mother by exploration or by apprentice apprenticing to some wise person in the neighborhood. That's crazy. That's diabolical. It is, especially because it's noted that the, the psychological difference that, that children behave differently when they're being watched and when they're not. I mean, you could argue everything changes when you watch it, that just observing something, it changes, but children actually behave differently when they think they're just being who they are without being scrutinized. I mean, I realize this when I'm on the highway, you know, anytime that we see a cop, I see a lot of us self-included <laughs> behave differently. Right. You know, I wonder though, I think the same thing happens when you come into church. Oh, you get a Everyone different hits feeling. the brakes when they yeah. go into church. Well, yeah. I mean, think about it. Oh, we're before God. He knows all and sees all. Like you weren't before. Him. <laughs> right, right, right. That's a little <laughs> cognitive dissonance there. Right. But uh, I love what Gatto says here. The meaning of constant surveillance and denial of privacy is that no one can be trusted. Privacy is not legitimate. Surveillance is an ancient imperative. Okay. Schools, schools must then prepare people for the surveillance state and the surveillance and for surveillance capitalism. That's definitely where we are today. Right. We, we have a, a, a society essentially under central control in the United States since just before the Civil War. And such a society requires compulsory schooling, government monopoly schooling to maintain itself. Now, why is that? He answers that by pointing out the fact that it is that type of person, the person that, that's been conditioned all the way down to being responsive to the system that makes the best consumer. Okay. And that's what that. you want. You want consumers. There's this thing about overproduction, which is this idea that if we're free to produce, we will produce more than what can actually be consumed. Okay. And if you're producing at a rate, you want to produce as much as you can, if you can get it consumed because you increase your profits. So to increase profits, you have to increase, you have to change your customer. And change them from being an ultimate producer to being an ultimate consumer. That's interesting. It rem uh, reminds me of Henry Ford because he, he wanted to pay his employees enough that they could buy their vehicles, but then even gave them another day off because they used to just have one day off. He's like, give them an extra day off so they can spend the money so they can consume more. You know, you were asking me the other day, what does a good curriculum look like? Mm -hmm. And I, I like what, uh, John does what he says in his book, um, Weapons of Mass Instruction. Okay. A good curriculum should, should teach and encourage students to ask hard questions of data, whether from textbook, uh, textbooks, authorities, or other expert sources. In other words, it should teach dialectics, 
It should teach children to define problems independently to avoid slavish dependence on official definitions, definitions that are probably politically correct or disassociated with other key concepts. Okay. It should help develop the ability to scan masses of irrelevant information and to quickly extract from the sludge whatever is useful, you know, like the Ayala effect. Gotcha. Gotcha. It should teach the ability to conceptualize. Teach students how to reorganize information into new patterns, which should enable a different perspective and foster new insight uh, other than the status quo. It should produce a mind that can transition fluidly between different modes of thought, deductive, inductive, heuristic, intuitive, etc. It should teach students how to work in partnerships or in teams. It should train students in the art of discussion of issues, problems, or techniques. It should teach students how to be proficient in rhetoric, convincing others your course is actually correct. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> but that's definitely not your daddy's school right there. Right. That would be an, an amazing experience. I think so. I, I think that that would be absolutely phenomenal. For sure. You know, by this point in the show, though, we realize we've covered a lot of a information. Lot. And for some of our listeners out there, they might actually be approaching information overload. Right. We get it. We get it. You might need some time to let it all calm down and digest before you take the next step. But... Now, for those who want a little challenge and you want to do a little independent research and perhaps maybe come to your own conclusions about a few things, we'd like to help you out with that. You know, we'll go ahead and post some links to some resources uh, that we mentioned here today, as well as some additional resources of intrigue that you might find interesting. Now, that interests you. Go to our website, truthfullyarmed.com, and on the main menu, select podcast and then select show notes from the drop down menu. And just look for the broadcast date of this show, and you should find linked resources from this episode. Now, as a disclaimer, some of the links will be to books or other things that you can buy. These are sponsored links, so a small portion of any purchase made using them will help support this podcast. Right, right. So with an audience this size, we know that someone is bound to ask, why does this even matter? We call that the Ayala effect. The need to sift through the information in order to find meaning. Meaning. Sorry. If you can't provide meaning for a person and all you give them is facts, then all they end up hearing is. <laughs> so why this information is important. Um, it's because realizing that the purpose of our educational system and the current state we find ourselves in has been crafted by the hands of those opposing the living God of the Bible. And those people, suffice to say, are the mortal enemies of God. Rogue human agents that serve the interest of Lucifer, either knowingly or unknowingly, but are enemies nonetheless. The Bible tells us that we shouldn't be ignorant of the schemes of our enemies, but we're to expose them. So the first practicality and obedience to the Bible is to not be ignorant. Right. Some, somebody might be asking now, okay, uh, what, what steps can I take against this agenda? I'm all about exposing it, but what, what practical steps can I take? So we'd say uh, you can educate yourself with things like this podcast, and the, but there is a bunch of other sources like truthunedited.com, Stephen Darby Ministries, the Ted Brower Show at healthmasters.com, um, Scott Ritzema at uh, beltoftruth.tv, or even uh, Call for an Uprising on YouTube. That, just to name a few, there's, there's a bunch more. Of course, don't forget Truthfully Armed. Truthfullyarmed.com. Right, right. right. <laughs> and as much as as much as possible, um, take a hands-on approach at educating your children. Dr. Chuck Missler 
the late Dr. Chuck Missler, says that the only biblically endorsed form of education is homeschooling. So while this might not sound suitable for everyone, given the rigors and the demands of society, try to arrange or rearrange your life so you can homeschool your children and get them out of this satanically oppressive system. So there's all kinds of groups that offer good homeschooling material, like Tuttle Twins, Aerospring Academy, Foundation Worldview, and Alpha Phonics are all excellent uh, places that you can go for, for that. If individual homeschooling isn't an option, there are many homeschooling co-ops available all over the nation. Private school could even be a suitable alternative, especially a reputable Christian school. Now, if none of these are, are viable options for you, please don't be discouraged. Having a child in this education system does allow you the opportunity to show them how to properly assess the information that's put before them. Now, it's going to take a lot of work from you as a parent. You'll have to work like it's all up to you, but pray like it's all up to God. Say that part again. You got to work like it's all up to you, but pray like it's all up to God. We should probably treat more things than just educating our children with that. Absolutely. That should be a life mantra. Right. No doubt. But however you go about it, remember that the education of children is 100% the parent's responsibility. Yeah. We are never alone. We have a community of believers all over the country and a loving God who intervenes on our behalf. And this allows us to stand in the gap and both assist those who are being damaged by the system and help prevent others from falling into the trap. A trap that America finds itself caught right in the middle of, imprisoned by its desire to free itself from God's sovereignty, which is why today America is not free. You know, that's not because we, we imprison a larger percentage of our population than any other nation on the planet. It's because that sobering fact isn't limited just to inmates, but includes our children as well. Those enrolled in both higher and lower education and subjected to the incarcerating nature of the modern educational system. Here's the thing. Every day we are given another opportunity to reclaim our minds from the oppressive mind control matrix we're subjected to on a 24-hour basis. But how? Simple. By renewing our minds, literally rewiring our brains with scripture so that we think more like Christ and less like Satan. Which means we can't forget that we live in a complex matrix of deception. A satanically inspired, demonically engineered prison of the mind. And we have to understand that it's been designed to operate right in front of our noses with minimal detection, constantly in stealth mode, in order to influence us to do its dirty work and contribute our life energies to help establish the new world order. This system was erected by men and women that were committed to their cause, a cause that dates back to ancient Luciferian snake-worshipping Canaanite order, an order that lusts for total world domination, and the walls of this matrix are the social control mechanisms used to guide humanity towards that aim. Now, between those walls, deep in the trenches, sits our educators. Some fighting to teach our children how to think competently and carefully, rationally, and most importantly, biblically, about life, while others... Well, they, they aim to use their powers to strip God, not just from the hearts and minds of students, but from the social discussion altogether. But now is the time to fight back. We have neither the time nor the inclination to be overly concerned anymore with the feelings of a world that rises and sleeps under the very blanket of free will that our God provides and then questions his goodness and wisdom in providing it. Which raises an important question here. Who is going to challenge these gatekeepers? Is it going to be the Muslim? How about the Jew? Perhaps the Hindu? 
Maybe it'll be the atheist or the skeptic. Or will it be the serious follower of Christ who unwaveringly stands flat-footed and speaks truth to power using the unadulterated, eternal, and unapologetic word of God Almighty? It daggone better be. We, those of us that confess allegiance to Yahweh and recognize the internally despondent position of our sin and that our guilt has placed us in a position before a holy God and in turn recognize our need and acceptance of an eternal Savior, Yahweh's Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus the Christ, that we is the last bastion of hope this world has. Why? Because we are the church and consequently, we're the only institution that has both the biblical mandate and social responsibility to act. There is a reason why scripture calls us salt and light. We are supposed to help stop the moral decay of society while simultaneously bringing in the intellectual and spiritual genius of Christ so that it replaces the false brilliance of Luciferian enlightenment. But make no mistake, light will dispel darkness. That's a fact woven into the laws of physics, but it'll also attract attention. And that's a fact woven into the experience of creation. We have to be okay with that. And that's why 365 times scripture repeats the phrase, do not be afraid. But friends, we get it. We know that many of the topics and discussions we have here are unnerving for people. And they're even taboo for some. You know, we go to the fringe of Christianity and deal with topics that most churches today just wouldn't touch with a six foot cross. Why? Because those topics are just too controversial. They're politically incorrect. They're scary as they should be. Because most of what we reveal here on this show are the hidden machinations of evil. Now, this evil is crafty. It anticipates your apathy, your busyness, your fear of confronting others and tendency to want to avoid conflict. It manufactures feelings of inadequacy so that you'll avoid spending real quality time with our Heavenly Father. It hopes that you will not only shy away, but completely avoid any situation that asks you to speak up. Why? So that it can remain hidden and unchecked. But the fact remains, we must present the truth at all times and at all costs. See guys, the reality is truth isn't just a collection of facts. It's not just an academic concept. It's a personal one and it culminates in the personhood of Jesus Christ. He is the one which all hope hangs. There is no way you or I could defeat an archangel. Which is exactly why Jesus has promised to come back and deal with Satan in the most violent of ways. I, for one, can't wait to experience that. See, Jesus will fulfill his messianic mandate and he'll restore creation back to the intended splendor that it originally was by reorienting everything again towards the Father. He'll bring the created order into proper relational harmony by bringing everything into complete alignment with the Father's will again. That is the true definition of a utopia. But until then, we got to remember that we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior-in-Chief. And that's the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But we still got to go get them. Now, our tasking order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment. But the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me. You take fire, you get fire. 
And I need you to do me a favor. Keep your head on a swivel out there. Stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you again out there fighting on the front line. 10-4.